Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning again, everybody. Uh, as Tad prayed, we're going to start together today a new book in the book of Ruth, but just a brief word before we jump in, specifically to uh, the members. We're about to enter the last quarter of the year. Can you believe October is this week? Gosh, time is flying by. Uh, so this is the last quarter of the calendar year, also, also for the fiscal year of uh, the church. And uh, we, in this part of the year, are always preparing uh, the budget to recommend to you for the following year. And in the last couple of years, the last quarter of the year has been really critical to uh, the church's financial status in terms of being able to continue all the ministries into the next year and uh, start new things as God leads. So if you would prayerfully consider how you could increase uh, your giving in this last quarter, that would be a huge help to the church family. If um, every, I calculated this morning during the first gathering sitting here, if every member gave an additional $150 above and beyond what you normally give between now and the end of the year, then we would uh, hit the spot we need to be at to lead into next year, not in a deficit. So some of us can do that, no problem, and even more. Others, uh, that would be impossible. So the analogy we would want to use isn't that we both have to have or all have to have um, equal amount of giving in order to be making equal sacrifice, but that we give out of what the Lord's provided to each of us. So please prayerfully consider that. Now for everybody, uh, today we're going to start a, a new sermon series that will last roughly the next seven weeks, Lord willing, covering the book of Ruth. A tucked in your Bible, between the lengthy books of Judges and 1 Samuel, is a tiny little book that, if you're not careful, you'll just breeze right past it and miss it entirely. It's a little book called Ruth, and it's to this book we'll turn our attention this morning. If uh, you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, should be one, and we will be on page 127 in those Bibles. Now, if you're a Disney princess fan, this is your book. There's Pocahontas, Snow White. I have one waving at me. Pocahontas, Snow White, Mulan, Tangled, Cinderella, Rapunzel, and there's Ruth. This is your book. Now, spoiler alert, the, the book of Ruth concludes with the widowed, childless, immigrant Ruth having undergone a better reversal than even Hollywood could concoct. You see, by the end of chapter 4, the widow has now been remarried to a godly, prosperous man. And the childless woman is now mother to a son named Obed. And Obed became the grandfather of a boy named David. And David became the most important king in the Old Testament. And through David came the eternal king, Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Ruth is ultimately about. Now, many people relish the book of Ruth for its famous love story. And don't get me wrong, it is an, a romantic book. But it's certainly more than that. In the coming weeks, as we work our way through this book, we'll encounter one of the most important records of the character of God in all the books that have ever been written. This book puts the answer to our question about who God is in crystal clear, bold type. This book is going to answer several questions that you and I have at times about God. Here's a few examples. Is he faithful? Is God trustworthy? Can you, when you're in the middle of difficulty, trust that God will do what's best? Is God dependable? Where is God when we face disaster? Does the Lord care and is he sovereign even over suffering? Is God in charge or are we? Or to put that more poetically, when we look back through the halls of history, are the kind fingerprints of God 
on every single moment of every single day that you and I live? Or are there times in which we somehow wrestle away control and mess up what God had in store? The book of Ruth answers these questions. Ruth tells us this short little book of only four chapters addresses all of these questions. I want to encourage you between now and next Sunday to get together with another person. Maybe that's a fellow Christian or perhaps even a non-Christian who'd be willing to read the Scriptures with you. It's literally the front and back of a page probably in your Bible. Get together, sit for 15, 20 minutes, read it all the way through, and then have a little bit of conversation about what you saw. It's a great way to get to know someone and also to prepare for what we'll consider in the coming week. But today our task is simply to introduce the book, to get oriented to the situation, to learn something of the characters and the circumstances behind the book. So we've asked uh, Brittany Mayfield, who is also a brand new church member, why don't you welcome her, if she would come and read for us. Thanks, Brittany. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the, in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Thank you, Brittany. In the last gathering, people clapped, and it was really awkward. This is not a happy paragraph. So you are the wiser bunch, but we'll keep that between us, right? Uh, do you remember back in school uh, what the five W's? Anybody remember these? Why don't you take a moment, turn to somebody next to you, and see if you can remember and remind each other of the five W's. All right, I enjoyed your snickering. These uh, five W's we learned in school are who, what, where, when, why. Excellent. See, I told you, you are brilliant people. Now, this morning, let's use those five W's to talk about this paragraph. And by way of this paragraph, to talk about the whole book. Now, we're going to look at some history today, and there's like three of us in the room that are just automatically excited about that. The rest of us, I want to encourage you today to labor with me. I'm going to share a bunch of things with you that may not feel readily applicable to your life. They may not be things you care that much about. But the scriptures can only be understood in our context if we first understand them in the original context. And so I want to try to paint the picture for you of what was happening then in order that you could understand what the significance of this text is today. So labor with me, work with me, think hard, and let's trust that God will use this in our own lives. So first, the first W, who? The book of Ruth opens with a paragraph about an Israelite family. There's a husband and a wife, Elimelech and Naomi. They also have two kids. Melon and Kilion. Now, as far as we know, at this point in the story, this is just an ordinary couple. These are normal kids. There's nothing unusual about them. Probably this is a husband and a wife with a mortgage and a lot of student debt. They're just like us. They're just like normal, everyday people. Verse 4 says that this family also eventually included two people from Moab. Now, this isn't Moab, Utah. This is Moab, which 
was in the hills east of Israel. This was the ethnic group known as the Moabites. Malon and Kilion, or Chilion, both married Moabite women. Now today, it's of usually no significance at all if people marry outside their own ethnicity. But back then, this was a different matter. You see, the two Israelite boys taking on Moabite wives very likely means that not only did they take a Moabite wife, but they took the Moabite gods. So this was very likely these two young men turning not only to Moab wives, but away from God. Now that's the who. Who? There's a family, and the family got bigger, and then the family got smaller. That's the who of this paragraph. Now let's consider what. What is the book of Ruth? Ruth is very different than what we've been studying together as a church family. Uh, For the last year, if we remember back to what we've looked at, we've looked at Matthew and considered what Jesus said in the Gospels about the church. We looked in the summer at the Psalms, so poetry uh, about largely the experiences of the people of Israel. And then before that, we looked at a Gospel. We looked at the Gospel of John, which is a biography about Jesus. Now, if you take Matthew, the last book we were in, we're going to back up about 11, 1,200 years, and we're going to take on a very different kind of material. So what is this book? The book of Ruth is what's known as historical narrative. Now, that means it tells a story, but it's not a made-up story. It's a story about real people who had real experiences in real places with the real God. Now, this goes to something significant about the nature of Christianity itself. You see, Christianity is a historical religion. Christianity is rooted in actual events that really happen. That's not true of every religion. In some religions, it makes no difference if the people who wrote were actual people. But Christianity doesn't work that way. And so, if you find this story... If you get together with other people and you read it through this week, like I've suggested, and you find it encouraging and uplifting, but it didn't actually happen, then you shouldn't bother reading it because it claims to be the actual events of real people. This story is not legend. It's not fairy tale. It's not merely symbolic. Elimelech, Naomi, and Ruth were real people. And so we study it not merely to somehow ascertain some heavenly idea, but to learn about the experiences that other people have with God in order that that might inform us about our own relationship with God. Now that's what the book is, but what is this particular paragraph? Well, do you remember not only the five W's from your earlier days, but do you remember the book, Alexander's Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day? Yes? Well, this paragraph records for us Elimelech's family's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad decade. In verse 1, there's a famine in the land. A famine in the land meant no food in the land. In verse 2, we see that the famine was so severe that this Jewish family leaves their country to go live with the idol-worshipping Moabites. In verse 3, this family, the leader of this family, Elimelech, dies. He leaves a wife and two sons to fend for themselves as refugees. And everything that's true today of refugees was true back then of refugees. They were outsiders. They were in many ways not wanted. They were in the way. They took up precious resources of the local people. They were often subjected to crime. 
It was hard to be a refugee. But things got worse. In verse 4, Malon and Kilion, the boys, both take on Moabite wives. And so you have Naomi without a husband and her boys choosing to walk away from God. In verse 5, both sons die. So imagine being Naomi. Imagine her standing over these graves, weeping. Her husband in the ground. Her oldest son in the ground. Her only other child in the ground. Incredibly tragic. She came to Moab for food with her family, but now she has no family. No family except these two Moabite daughters-in-law. Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, they are penniless and they are childless. They are heartbroken and they are defeated. And most importantly, the family line is on the brink of extinction. Wiped out. No more. Quite literally, it could not have gotten worse. This opening paragraph is devastating. It's crushing. That's what? A spiraling descent of crisis. Now, do you remember your third W? Who? What? Where? One of you is still with me. You'll notice in verse 2 that the story begins in the city of Bethlehem. In Elimelech's day, Bethlehem was an insignificant town about five miles south of Jerusalem. Now, it's still there. Isn't that crazy? Bethlehem, sure, it's grown. There's sprawl there, like here. But the center of Bethlehem is still where it was roughly 3,000 years ago. That's astonishing to me. It's grown, but it's still there. Now, Bethlehem means house of bread. It was known as a place of abundance, where there was always plenty, where you could always catch a warm, fresh loaf. The irony is palpable. The house of bread is no longer habitable because the people are starving from the famine. The end of verse 2 says, though, that this family moved from Bethlehem to the country of Moab. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you may remember that the Moabites were one of Israel's longest standing enemies. These were not people who loved God. These were not people who honored, respected, obeyed, and followed the God of the Bible. They were people who did not, in fact, do any of that. These were people of idolatry. And so Elimelech, Naomi, and the kids moving to Moab would be in some way analogous to an alcoholic trying to not drink, hanging out in a bar. If an alcoholic hanging out in a bar doesn't drink the first day or the second day or the third day, what is eventually going to happen? They'll very likely fall off the wagon. This family, by way of analogy, moving to Moab, multiplied the likeliness that they would be unfaithful to God a hundredfold. This family from Bethlehem was particularly susceptible to unfaithfulness because they chose to live among people of unfaithfulness. Now when? Well, look at verse 1 with me again for our fourth W. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. You'll see right here in the beginning when. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife 
and his two sons. When does this story take place? Well, it takes place in the period of time in the Scriptures known as the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you've paid any attention to the news the last several weeks, you have seen a judge all over the news. I hope that you are praying for that judge, for the woman who has come forward with an experience that happened to her. I hope you're praying for the senators who sit on this council, on this committee that will need to make a decision about what they think actually happened. I hope you'll then pray for all the senators and the decision they need to make. This isn't stuff merely to argue about. These are things to pray for. These are things to be mourning over. These are things to take seriously. We still have judges today. But the judges in our day are nothing like the judges in the days when the judges ruled. Their role was completely different. Now again, I know a lot of us may not find this readily applicable, but hang with me, it's going to make a difference. The days when the judges ruled, these judges were different. They had a different task. Let me see if I can explain. If you were reading through your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you came to Joshua. The period of time after Joshua, but before King Saul, is the period of the judges. If you wanted to read about this in your Bible, perhaps you're unfamiliar with it and just want to learn more, I'd encourage you to do that. Take one of these Bibles home and read from Judges chapter 1 through 1 Samuel chapter 10. That's the period of the judges. It was a time of about 400 years. It won't take you that long to read it, I promise. These days were hard days for the people of Israel. When you hear judges ruled, it doesn't mean judges ruling from a judicial bench. It means something more like local military heroes. Judges were people that God brought to provide protection to the Israelites. They protected them from God's and their enemies. They were local military heroes. But the days when the judges ruled were not good days for the nation of Israel. In fact, if there were one picture you could get in your mind for these 400 years, it would be a toilet. Because the period of the judges is a period of decay, of disgusting moral filth, and of a downward spiral where things got worse and worse and worse. It's like your toilet. Here's essentially the way the circle went. There's a repeated cycle through these 400 years. The Israelites ignored God and chose to sin. God inevitably and invariably responded with judgment. The people then repented. God's blessings returned as he sent a new judge to protect them, help them, take care of them. And then they sinned again. And this cycle swirled over and over and over and over. But it, it didn't just have a cyclical sp uh, spiral to it. It also had a downward movement. You see, by the end of the story, most of the people no longer are repenting. And even the judges themselves became corrupt. This was not a good period of time for Israel. There's a refrain running through the book of Judges, and it's poignantly clear because it's the very last book, uh, the very last chapter, and the very last verse in the very last chapter says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friend, that ought to send shivers down your spine. In part, because we know how bad things went for them. But in part, because I'm not sure our days are much different. 
Today, it seems that most people want to do what's right in their own eyes. The problem with that is we are created beings. We are not creators. We see dimly. We don't see rightly. And so doing what seems right to us will inevitably lead to hardship, failure, and walking away from what's good. May this story in the book of Judges stand as a stark reminder to us that we ought not do what's right in our own eyes, but what's right in the eyes of the Lord. So this is when. This is this 400-year period of time, somewhere in there, very likely in the middle, is when the story in the book of Ruth took place. Now all of this brings us to our last W, the most important one, the reason why you've tolerated me this long. Why? Why? Why did the crisis, the tragedy of the first paragraph happen? Why? Well, at one level, you might be wondering, well, perhaps these are examples of simply the normal heartbreak of living in a fallen world. I mean, natural disasters happen. Crises come. If you live long enough, you're going to suffer. I'm coming with lots of good news today. If you outlive some freak accident, then you're going to slowly rot. This is what happens to people. You're going to die. People you love are going to die. People they love are going to die. Some of us will get fired. Some of us will bury kids. Some of us may have spouses leave us. Some of us will make decisions that are disastrous. Living in a fallen world means we do fallen things and brokenness pervades our experience. When Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3 sinned, everything began to fall apart. And so it's typical today to go through difficulty. Hardship will hit, disaster will descend. And many times there's simply no way to draw a direct line of causation between what we do and what happens to us. We live in a broken world. But is that what this paragraph is about? Remember my question. Why these particular tragedies to these particular people? What I'm going to tell you next is very likely going to give some of you severe spiritual heartburn. And so I want to encourage you to pop a few peptos of God's grace. Let them soak and give this time. Don't react viscerally in such a way that you won't think about it anymore. But rather, get together with another Christian that you trust and talk this out. Meet me out on the patio after. Send me an email telling me you think I'm nuts. But don't shelve this. Think through it. It's important. Part of the reason for this crisis to this family may very well be that they had wandered away from God. It just might be that what happened to them happened to them because God told them it would happen to them if they didn't follow him. The physical famine, you see, was in part a result of the bounty of their disobedience. Elimelech very likely, now this is at the um, 
implicit, not explicit part of the story. But Elimelech very likely ought to have led his family to repent of their sin, return to God, stay put in Bethlehem, and ask God to provide for them in supernatural ways. That's what he ought to have done because the land was the place of God's presence. This is where God said, I have prepared you for here and I will bless you here. But instead, they left the land of God's blessing for the land of idolatry. They took matters, as we're often so tempted to do, into their own hands, leaving behind not only Bethlehem, but God. Now, why was Moab such a bad place to go? Well, the Moabites originated out of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. Two of the daughters had no kids, and so they came up with this plan, let's get dad drunk and then have sex with him, then we'll get pregnant, then we'll have kids. And so that's exactly what they did. This oldest daughter had a son, and the son's name was Moab. And so from the very beginning, the Moabites were a people who were repugnant, a people who did not follow God, a people who rejected him and all things moral, ethical, upright, and good. And that's where this family chose to go. They chose to live among a people who wanted nothing to do with their God. And not only did they choose to go there, they chose to stay there. Did you notice the progression? Look closely at verse 1. It says, they went to sojourn. Now, sojourn is not a word we use. To sojourn means to go somewhere that's not your own and temporarily stay and then leave again. When, when you go on vacation, you sojourn to a new place. You stay in a hotel for a couple of days. But this family went from the hotel to renting a place. Look at verse 2. It says they remained there. They, they didn't just stay in a hotel. They put a lease down on an apartment for a year. But not only did they put a lease down on an apartment, they got land and built a house. It says in verse 3 that they lived there 10 years. This family went from sojourn, hotel, to remain, renting, to putting down roots, staying put, being comfortable not just in the place where there was food, but in the place outside the bounds of what God had for his people. Friends, wandering from God often lasts longer and affects us deeper than we ever planned. When, when we make the decision to sin in one way, very likely we'll make the decision to then sin in another way, in another, in another, in another. And before you know it, we have wandered further from God than we ever dreamed possible. That's what this family did. And turning from God never leads to ease. It always leads to hardship. Sure, the particulars might be different, but wandering from God's path will inevitably lead to increasing difficulty. It seems clear to me that this crisis in this family was a result of their failure to obey. Now, that may sound absolutely nuts to you. You might be thinking, we need to get a new preacher. But let me try to set the stage for you in the broader context of the Bible. You see, the Israelites were part of a commitment with God called a covenant. It started with Moses. Covenants are one of the keys to understanding the whole biblical story. Now, we don't have a great analogy today for covenants. We have one example. It's not a great example because it's so often broken, but it is an example. When a husband and wife stand here in this room or somewhere else, when a man and a woman stand here, face each other, 
hold hands, make vows, they are making a covenant. They are promising themselves under God to each other. They're saying, until death do us part, I will remain faithful to you. That's a covenant. The Israelites, during the days of the judges, were under the Mosaic, it's named after Moses, they were under the Mosaic covenant. And during this period of time, God was being faithful to his commitment, and the Israelites, for the majority of them, were not. God was being a faithful spouse. Israel was sleeping around. God was remaining steadfast in his love. Israel was playing the horror. The hardships experienced in Ruth 1, 1 to 5, are due, at least in part, to their failure to follow the covenant set by God. Maybe you still don't believe me. Maybe you still have questions. Well, Deuteronomy 28 which came before all of this, explicitly connects these events. It says in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, if you, meaning Israel, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commitments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set high above you all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now listen for the connections. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, the fruit of the cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flocks. Jump down to verse 11. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your livestock, the fruit of your ground. Where? Within the land. That's within the land of Israel. This geographical place that God had for them. Within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain on the land in the season and to bless all the works of your hands. Why was Bethlehem ever called Bethlehem? Because God was faithful. He showered rain. He provided for his people. He gave them physical abundance because he is so spiritually good. But verse 15 will tell us what happens if they do not obey. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments in his statutes that I command you today, Then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Everything after this is the exact opposite of what he said he would provide. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. What does that mean? No bread. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed will you be when you come in and cursed will you be when you go out. Where do these come from? The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do. Aren't you glad you came today? Unless or until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of your evil deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you're entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with a wasting disease and a fever, inflammation and a fiery heat, with drought, with blight, with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. The heavens above your head shall be bronze. The earth underneath you shall be iron. Friends, God told them exactly what would happen. If you are faithful to the covenant, I will give you physical provision beyond what you can imagine. 
if you are unfaithful to the covenant, I will curse you. This is what God said, and this is what God did. The Israelites in general, and Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, Chilion in particular, may very well have experienced all of these trials because they broke their covenant promises. Now, if you're anything like me, as you think about that, all kinds of exceedingly troubling questions come to mind. Let me try to leave a couple of them. Let's be clear. In many ways, things are different today. We are not Israelites. We are Christians. We are not in Israel. We are in the church. Christians and churches live in the New Testament days. Things are different. Let me give you three ways in which they're different. Number one, Christians are under the new covenant, not the Mosaic covenant. This covenant is not fulfilled by us. It's fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So here's what that means. You and I have been unfaithful to the law. We have not followed what the Mosaic covenant calls for. You can look at the person next to them and tell them, you're just as big a scumbag as me. And it will be true. We have not been faithful to God. And therefore, all of the curses I read are due to us. But Jesus came as the better Israel. He did what Israel didn't do. He lived a life of perfect obedience, honoring the covenant in every way. And therefore, he could offer himself as a sacrifice to take all the curses that he didn't deserve. And so, Christian, you ought to be leaping inside right now. Because what that means is all the blessings given and belonging to Jesus are yours. And all the curses you rightly deserve are his. This is what it means to be under the new covenant. This is why this is a better way, a new way, an exceedingly more wonderful way. We live under the new covenant. Now, a second way this is different, brothers and sisters, is our blessings from God today are often spiritual, not physical. Here's what I mean. In most cases, it would be exceedingly unwise for you to look at how much money you have, how big your house is, how things are going at your job, and how your health is doing, and connect that to things that are spiritual. That would be very, very, very unwise. Because God today is not primarily showering upon you blessings that are physical and tangible, but rather blessings that are spiritual and feel rather intangible. This is the era in which we live. The physical blessings in Israel were always designed to point forward to the spiritual blessings that we now have, and even more so to point forward to all that we'll have when our king returns and we're with him in a perfect place. This was always temporary. And so we don't look at our lives today and say, oh, I'm sick and uh, 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 I don't have very much money. Therefore, that must mean God is judging me. Friend, that is not, in fact, probably what has happened. Now, sure, if you get drunk and go driving and you wreck your car and you get physically hurt, is that physically hurt connected to your decision to go and abuse alcohol? Yes. But that's simply cause and effect. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought to look mainly at our spiritual blessings from God and trust that God will provide us enough physically as he designed. Now, a third way this is different today is that Christians are not bound to the land of Israel as the location of God's favor. You heard in that text we read that it said, in the land. That meant literally in the physical land of Israel. We, as Christians, have been placed into Christ, not into 
a particular geographical location. You see what that means? If you can't stand the heat here, then move. Whether you live in Tempe or Tahiti is inconsequential. God will be with you. It doesn't matter. You are free in the Lord to make decisions about where you want to work, where you want to live, and what kind of temperature you want to endure. God will be with you. The place of blessing today is in Christ, not in Israel. This is good news. This is really good news. And so you are incredibly free. You are not obligated to live in a particular place in order to remain in the blessings of God. The land blessings, let me say this again because this is so confusing to many of us. The land blessings in Israel were always designed to point forward to the lasting spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. It's a picture helping us understand something that's hard to understand. But in the days of the judges, things were different. The seriousness of sin, the consequences of the curses, the failure to obey, were all wrapped up, not only in spiritual things, but in physical things too. And yet over and over and over again, like the swirling of the toilet bowl, the people in the days of the judges walked away from God over and over and over. And so God sent the curses. God did exactly what he said he would do. Now, not even the sin of the people could stop God's providential plan, though. Because from this terrible decision that this family made, God in his sovereign grace and mercy, we'll see in the coming weeks, ended up bringing about King David. And more people after King David made dumb decisions too. But God, through that family line, brought the perfect Savior, King Jesus, who rules and reigns on his throne forever. Christian, it is impossible for you to do something so catastrophic that you can fall outside of God's power and his care. It literally is impossible. Jesus is genealogically connected to the Moabites. you get what that means? The grace of God is able to cover every sin, even yours. What a story this is. Now, brothers and sisters, you've labored long and hard with me. At least you look like you have. Thank you. By way of conclusion, let me try to apply this to two different groups of people who are here today. First, let me talk to my fellow brothers and sisters, Christians. Friends, this story, and it is a hard story, but this story shows us that God is shockingly faithful. God keeps his covenant. God is faithful even when we are faithless. God is perfect even when we are not. And we are bound up in him, not because of our behavior, but because of Jesus. And so you can rest in the faithfulness of God. You can always come back to him, knowing that what you'll get is not a stiff arm, but open arms. This is the grace of God that's ours in Jesus Christ. And so if you have sinned, and you proverbially have gone to Moab, you don't need to go from that hotel to rent to purchasing a home. Friend, there is a better way to live and it is still open to you. Turn from sin and turn back to Christ. He is still yours. The Father still loves you. 
There is no mistake you have made that is somehow able to render you outside of God's providential power and care. And if you don't need that today, file it away because you will need it at some point. We all will find ourselves having done things we never dreamed we would do. The faithfulness of God is what will carry us through. Now, the other group of people I'd love to speak to just for a moment is those of you here today who are not followers of Christ. I had a great conversation after our first gathering with somebody who just said, let me tell you straight up, I don't believe this stuff. I found that so refreshing. We ought not pretend. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, welcome. We would love to tell you more, more about the kindness of God, more about the grace of God, more about the love of God, more about the faithfulness of God, more about the way in which Jesus took the punishment for sinners in order that all that's his could be given to those who don't deserve it. That's what we Christians call the gospel, the good news that your sin can be exchanged for Jesus' right standing with God. If you want to hear more, we'd love for you to stick around. We're going to end in five minutes. Why don't you ask somebody sitting near you, tell me more. And I bet they'd be willing to even get together with you and read some of more of the Bible. Read the biblical story of what God has done for sinners that you too might be rescued. And if today you already believe, then you can turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And the curses you deserve will be exchanged for the blessings you don't. This is the essential message of the Bible. And it is, in fact, why you're here today. Friends, I hope you'll read this book, and I hope you'll heed its message. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what you've promised to do, as you always do, that you would take your word and that it would now bear fruit. Pray for Christians to be encouraged by your faithfulness. Pray for brothers and sisters who have wandered into sin to turn back. Pray for lost people who don't know you God, that even now as I pray, you would open their minds to truth. You grant them faith. We pray, Father, that we would be a people who believe you and follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chuck. For